Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. I have wanted to do this episode on Spot On for so long because all I am seeing in social media is this beat let's beat up on a farmer day. Everybody is 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 thinking these farmers are, you know, are, are not nice people and they're putting yuck stuff in your food. That's why today's episode is called Why You Need to Hug a Farmer because when you listen and you understand what goes into producing your food and what they're all about, you're really, really going to be blown away. So let's go to the street and ask, do you really, really trust farmers and you think they have your best interest and health in mind? Let's find out. I would say... I certainly hope that they have our best interests in mind when they're farming, but you never know, I guess. I do trust uh, farmers have our best interests at heart. They are the backbone of this country. Uh, everything started off with agriculture. Some people may argue that all the people only care about money, so farmers may use harmful pesticides or other chemicals. I relate health with um, like doctors and pharmacists, not really farmers. I don't think that farmers are trying to pull one over on America. It's very important for farmers to have a standards, no matter if it's enforced by um, grocery store chains, enforced by these organizations, for example, FDA. I guess not, because a lot of like crops and agriculture and like cattle are, I guess, injected with hormones, and we, we really don't know what's happening with the food. You don't think about it, but when you go to the grocery store or any supermarket, like, it comes from a farm. It's been shipped, like, very far distances. So I think that they do have best interests in mind, but I also know that they have, like, there's probably many laws and many regulations that they have to follow and sometimes cut corners as humans. So I think there are definitely things that go on in there. I think that farmers are just trying to make a living like every other American, and they're doing a fairly good job at it. So welcome to Spot On. Today I'm really excited, I'm always excited, to have my guest on today. Her name is Leah McGrath. You know, I've known Leah for a while, and she sent me this little blurb about her, and I found out things I did not know about her, and we will discuss (laughs) this once we get, you know, I introduce her because I don't like secrets, but whatever. She is a, been a retail dietitian for about 19 years, and that's a really, really cool occupation where s- supermarkets actually have this nutrition expert right on board that can help shoppers, which makes all the sense in the world. She is on the editorial board for Soy uh, Connection Newsletter. She has a weekly radio program. She appears on television monthly, and she is the most followed supermarket dietitian in the United States. Let me tell you, this woman has a lot of followers. But this is what I didn't know, Miss Leah, and I, I need an explanation. 
She served in the army as a dietitian. Mm. Now, when were you going to tell me that, honey? Uh, you know, it seems like such. Well, it was a long time ago now, but um, I went back to school to be a, a dietitian in my early. 30s. So okay. I'm a second career dietitian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if it gives hope to anybody sitting listening who thinks, oh, I'm too old to go back to school, I was in my, I guess I was in my early 30s. And then when it came time to look for internships, one of the internships I applied for was the Army internship. I went through the Army internship at Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. at that time. And I became an officer and a dietitian at the same time. No, I'm going to salute you the next time I see you. I didn't know you were an officer. <laughs> My goodness, yeah. what a cool, cool way to do a second career. Yeah, and, and the Army was a just an amazing experience. And my sister actually went through the Air Force internship, and she served in the Air Force oh, as a dietitian. This must be a great Thanksgiving table, you know, between you and your sister, everybody else. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've got the whole U.S. Um, military force around the table. Good for you. Yeah. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. All right, so now we know that that secret is out. What we're talking about today is about farmers and farming and how much we have to hug a farmer and why sure. so many times. I don't understand this, Leah, why farmers often get such bad rap uh, in social media that, you know, they, people just say sometimes ugly things about them and repeat things that are misinformation. So, so let me let me go back. We got you in the Army, but then how the heck did you get this passion for farming and farmers? You know, it's so funny that you're asking that, Joan, because somebody asked me that the other day, too. They said, you know, where is this kind of coming from for you as a dietitian? Because as you know, Joan, agriculture and farming isn't really part of nutrition studies or our internship, or at least it wasn't when I was in school. And then it wasn't until I was uh, working in public health and was working really closely with our local farming community and the farmer's market that I first had that kind of a kind of awakening about farmers. And then um, when I started working in retail, I decided probably it's probably been about eight to 10 years ago now that I was getting a lot of questions from customers about how food was being grown and raised. And I realized that I couldn't always answer their questions mm-hmm. because I didn't know for myself. So I sort of went on this little like road trip for about two years, just visiting all sorts of farmers, everything from organic farms to apple orchards to trout farms, biodynamic farms, to hydroponic farms, cattle ranches, pig farms, food processing companies, manufacturers. I really crammed, tried to cram a lot of knowledge into a few years to, to learn more so I could felt more confident answering questions that our customers had. You know, that's that's very interesting you say that. And you're right. We don't realize that food comes from a farm. We just think it shows up on a truck at the right. supermarket and, you know, uh, it, it looks gorgeous and everything. And we don't know the backstory, but somebody is growing this or raising um, fish or animals uh, so that we have food. And I don't understand why we are not thanking these farmers over and over again for doing this because they didn't do it. We wouldn't have food. Yet there's a lot of um, negative commenting about big ag and big agriculture in and farming. And I don't understand them because if we didn't have these farmers, we wouldn't have the food. So so why do you think they get this you know bum rap in a lot of social media and in articles? What What's going on here? 
You know, Jaron, I think it's a lot like, you know, if you've ever gone to the theater and you see the people on the main stage, the actors, well, many people realize that to put on a play, you have to have all these people behind the scenes, the people running the lights, the people repairing the costumes, the people helping with makeup. Those are people that never get any kind of accolades. It's the people that are on the stage that get all the accolades. They're the ones that are in the spotlight. So in the case of food, on the stage, what gets all the spotlight is maybe the food itself or the marketing. And what people often don't realize is what it takes to, to grow or produce that food, raise that food, get it to market. Those people are just kind of going around and doing their work, their jobs on a daily basis, hard work with little or no recognition. This is what they've always known. You know, they've grown up on a cattle ranch or they've grown up pig farming. They're not seeking out the spotlight. Right. You know, they're not the brand or anything like that. They're just doing their job. And I think it's a great question, Joan. Why do people kind of vilify farming and even more specifically certain types of farming? You know, you heard that word, big ag is bad. Well, what makes it big? Is it 50 cows? Is it 500 cows? Is it 5,000 cows? Is it, you know, 100 employees? Is it 1,000 employees? So that's a really arbitrary definition. So The majority of farms, when I, I was doing my little homework here, Leah, are small farms. The majority of farms in the United States that feed us are small farms, family farms. But this is hard work, and this has been handed down. And I've been on a few farms, too. We were talking about this the other day with uh, Jill Castle when we were talking about you know cow farms and milk and things. You know, I've been on it. They love their animals and everything. And yet you often see a backlash in social media saying, oh, you know, the, the, this farmer, is they're cruel to their animals, or they are using all these pesticides on their, uh, on their crops. And they're not cruel to their animals. They love their animals. Why would they be cruel to their animals? And yet I don't understand why they get this negative uh, publicity that's inaccurate. And where is it coming from and who is it coming from? We're so much more separated from that agriculture and farming life than maybe our grandparents or Mm great-grandparents were. Farms now have this amazing technology to help them produce crops more efficiently, care for animals more safely for both workers and the animals. I think it's kind of one of those things that sometimes when you don't know or don't understand something, you tend to mistrust it, distrust it, be suspicious of it. I think if people got to know some farmers like you and I both have, then I think some of your concern, people's concerns would be I, I think that's true. I think that people should, on their to-do list, go visit a farm. And you don't have to go all the way to you know another state because there are local farms wherever you live. Mm-hmm. And go and visit it and see the passion behind these farmers. And, and especially, you know, see ones that grow crops and one that raise animals because what goes into it, and it is hard work. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mother Nature sometimes is not nice and not working with farmers. And it can rain or, oh, yeah. in some cases, not rain. Right. Animals may get sick. And uh, it's right. really, really challenging. And I, I, I got a statistic here that I find is mind-boggling, bo- that in 1935 there was over 6 million farms feeding approximately 127 million Americans. Now there's fewer than 960,000 hardworking Americans, less than 1% of the population, producing food to feed 
300 million people. So, hello. You know, it's like, hello, you better go hug a farmer. In fact, I want to make sure I make friends with a farmer. Less people have to work harder to make more food for more people, yet we are not. We should be, you know, putting these people up on a pedestal rather than having all this negative comments that are coming out about them. So tell me, you talked about technology, and, I, and I, I've been to farms, and I've, I've seen some technologies on farms that blow me away. What have you seen? I, uh, one of our local farmers that supplies us with beef, he was doing a trial, it's been about two years ago now, with the cattle equivalent of a Fitbit. So they were Ooh. attaching these things like, they were like Fitbit to the legs of the cattle, that was helping them track the activity of the cattle. Typically, cattle are going to be beef cattle are going to be grazing all day and moving from spot to spot. And if they saw one of the cows that was suddenly like not moving very much, they would check it out and see, you know, what's the problem? Is the problem is it is that particular cow sick? Uh, is that the reason why it's not moving as much? And I think they were even doing some things that were tracking temperatures so they could kind of anticipate if the cow was um, becoming ill and take action a lot more quickly to isolate the cow so it didn't make other cattle sick. They were using a lot of herbal kind of remedies on their cattle. They didn't, they weren't using antibiotics. So it was in their interest to be really, really proactive when they would see a, a cow that might be getting sick. So that was a really interesting one. Um, I'm constantly amazed how carefully they track temperatures of milk and they test milk at certain stages. With a turkey uh, farm down in eastern North Carolina, the gentleman had two or three different houses where they have turkeys of different ages. And he had an app on his phone that would alert him if the temperature in the turkey house dropped by even like a degree or so, he would get alerts on his phone so that he knew to go and check the turkeys to make sure they're okay, they're not getting overheated. My goodness, I, mean, it's like, I, I, I think I might come back. I don't know whether to come back as a cow with a Fitbit on my leg or a turkey. <laughs> um, it sounds pretty comfortable. But but that, I mean, that's the fascinating part. And going back to the cow and the Fitbit, what people don't realize is that, you know, they you know, are staying to- on top of the animals because you're right, yeah. if, he, if, a temp, if it if spikes a temp, temperature, they want to get it quickly so it doesn't infect the other cows and they don't have right. to get antibiotics to the whole cow. Right. So they'll look at the cow and say, oh my gosh, this one might be getting sick. Let's pull it from the herd. So this way right. they um, don't have to give uh, antibiotics to all of them to, you know, it's like, you right. know, and, and, and people think that, oh, just give them antibiotics. They, they all give them antibiotics. So this way, you know, they're going to grow bigger or they're going to, you know, no. this way. No, mm-hmm. but, they, but antibiotics cost money. You don't just exactly. throw antibiotics at a whole herd of cow, that's cost money. Right. And, and if you do that, that makes your, you're going to less make less money because people are just going to pay so much a pound for beef or whatever. And people don't 
really, really understand that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of technology in farming that has made the use of um, pesticides or reducing the use of antibiotics in animals when they're sick. And and let's talk about that because they only give antibiotics when the animal's sick, right? They Isn't it illegal to give antibiotics proactively for an, in animals? Yeah, you know, and I think it was in 2016 or 2017, the veterinary feed directive came out. Farmers, they have to have veterinary oversight to give antibiotics. It can't just be put in feed. Right. Um, they have to have a veterinarian sign off on um, giving antibiotics to poultry and any kind of um, feed animals. So people don't think about, they think about, oh my gosh, all these antibiotics, antibiotic resistance. They're also being given to our dogs and cats too. And, and sometimes we are guilty in the whole antibiotic conversation because we, we run to the doctor anytime we don't feel well and demand an antibiotic. Right, right. And so, and like you said, for farmers, it's a really, it's a, an economic conversation. So when you're, you're not dealing with one cow, you're dealing with a thousand. So you're going to be very judicious about doing that. The same thing with pesticides. Can we, can we talk about that? I, you know, sure. first of all, I think personally, uh, you know, pesticides are used because there are pests, you know, bugs and things that are going to eat the crop if we don't right. stop them. You know, and we don't want pests coming into a farm and eating all the crops uh, because then you're growing stuff and you have no yield and we, we have no food. So, but I think the, the word pesticide is a bad word. I think we have to change right. that. I mean, can we, I agree. can we come up with another name like, I don't know, crop enhancer or, you know, crop right. friendly, I think, whatever. I think they use Crop protectant is, I, oh. I think, I hear more. Yeah, it became really real to me a, a few years ago. When and if any, if you've ever had a garden, uh, a vegetable garden, it makes a lot more sense to you to think about pesticides. Because I had this beautiful kale last year. I mean, it was that lacinato dinosaur kale mm. that was coming up, and it was just beautiful. Like that kind of blue-green color kale, and I was so excited. And I was like, oh, it just needs like one more day, and then I'm going to, I could just visualize it. I'm going to cut it, and I'm going to have this delicious massage kale salad with Parmesan and garlic and lemon grown in my own garden, lacinato kale. And so the next day I went out to harvest my kale from my little garden, and there was literally none left overnight. <laughs> Overnight, Joan, a bug had come in, and I could still see them, and they had eaten every bit of that kale. Overnight, was gone. Yeah. Well, Overnight. honey, you know, you're feeding the animals. You know, now they got a lot of vitamin K and fiber, so they're not constipated, but it was on your dime, and, you know, oh, God. Right. Right, right. So, so that made me think, what if I was a farmer, right. and something like that happened on my... 25 acres or my 50 acres or my 100 acres where some kind of insect or disease got in and destroyed my whole right. crop in a matter of days, I would have nothing to send to market. I would lose all, a lot of money. It would be a big financial hit for myself, my family, the workers who depend on me. Pesticides are not only, of course, for pests like insects, but they're also for weeds. Right. So weeds can kill Things and also diseases like fungus and blight we get here in North Carolina. We get a lot of blight, and that kills tomatoes real 
I've had it happen to my tomatoes. So important for people to think about the fact that uh, farmers aren't going to use more pesticides than they need because it's expensive. It's expensive to buy them, expensive to apply them, take the time to apply them. So they're going to use the minimal amount they can get away with and still protect their crop. difference between organic farming and traditionally grown? Can you help us with that, with this whole pesticide issue? Sure. So I think one of the things, as a supermarket dietitian, I hear a lot is, I buy organic because it's pesticide-free. And I have to remind them that organic is a certification of agricultural standards. But in the organic agricultural standards, it does say that you can use pesticides, but they just have to be naturally de- derived pesticides. So it is a falsehood to think that organic farmers don't use pesticides. Mm, they have to use, yeah, they have to use, they can only use certain ones. They have to use approved ones. They're supposed to do more preventive things, um, oftentimes to check before they can use pesticides, but depending on the crop, depending on the season, depending on where it's grown, they definitely use pesticides. The biggest difference between organic and non-organic is that organic farmers cannot use seeds that are from genetically engineered seeds. Right. And there's some other differences, but that is probably the biggest difference. Right, right. And, you know, that doesn't mean that traditionally grown farmers that may use pesticides. Maybe you're using some of these organic with non-organic exactly. pesticides. Exactly. So everybody's mixing yeah. it all up. I think what, what's happening is that everybody's trying to use as little as possible because right. we it, it costs money. Whichever way, whether it's organic uh, pesticides or traditionally used pesticides, it costs money, and that's the bottom line. And it's a fine line from adding you know expensive pesticides, to organic or not, and having deer come in and eat all your kale or bug come in and eat all your kale. So, you know, and then you have you don't have anything to sell. And these farmers, guess what? They're human beings. They have a house. They have a mortgage. They have electricity. They got to feed their kids. They got to put their kids through college. So this is a business. You know what I mean? So you they don't yeah. want to ha- not have a year where, gee, the crops were all eaten by bugs and they have nothing to sell. We often hear that organic is nutritionally superior to or traditionally grown. Is that what's the story on that? What I've seen, and you probably know this, as well, or even more so, is that some studies that come out and say organic uh, is better nutritionally. When you really look at the study, you find out that maybe they studied one particular kind of fruit or vegetable, and they might have found one antioxidant that was higher in that organic crop than in the conventionally grown or non-organic crop. Antioxidants kind of work as a protectant for for crops, just like they work for us, mm-hmm. but just because an antioxidant level is higher doesn't necessarily mean it's going to protect us. And then there's a lot of different shades of, you know, how high and right. what's the difference. So I think by now, and we've had the organic standards have been around since what, like late 1990s, I think. Mm-hmm. If there was a huge nutritional difference. It would have been shouted from the rooftop right, by right, now, right, and right, it's not been. Right. And, you know, uh, let's, let's price point. You know, I'm, you know me, I'm a bargain right. shopper. So 
Uh, you know, people. I, I get this question all the time when I'm on media. People say to me, "All right, nutrition professor, dietitian, what do you eat? Do you eat organic uh, or traditionally right. grown?" And my my answer is going is always the same. I buy what's on sale. I don't care how it was right. grown because um, I want to get the most. Uh, fruits and vegetables or f- healthy foods for my by buck and I, right. I you know and and there's a lot of people in this world that you know if you say you have only ten dollars to to uh, use on produce and the produce aisle well man get get the as much produce as you can for that ten dollars you know because it's the volume that you eat you know I don't want you to spend ten dollars on organic you know uh, fruits and vegetables and come home with a half a bag of vegetables I rather you do whatever is on sale and come home with three bags of vegetables I don't like when people scare people out of eating fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables. And that's something that comes out every fall that makes me absolutely crazy. It's called the Dirty Dozen. Do you want right. to talk? This makes me crazy every year. So tell tell us, tell us my listeners here what the heck the Dirty Dozen is. Sure. So um, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 are lists um, that are created every year by the Environmental Working Group. They actually use data from the USDA, and I think the USDA, maybe even the EPA, and every year they take samples of different crops and check for pesticide residue. And like every year, if you can, you can find the statistics, they find that 99% of all fruits and vegetables harvested in the United States have less than even the, the lowest acceptable amount of pesticides that would be considered dangerous. And they're measuring this in parts per billion. So the amount of of fruits and vegetables you would have to eat to even get to a dangerous level is so extraordinary that you physically couldn't do it. There's a website called safefruitsandveggies.com and you can put in your gender, your you know whether you're an adult or a child, and you can pick a fruit or vegetable and it will say you have to eat 250 cups of strawberries a day to get to even the least recorded amount that would be dangerous to you. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, So anyway... And that's 200 strawberries a day for a long time. That's just not one day. Yeah. That's 200 servings per day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so you're talking like, what is that, a cup per serving? So, So every year they come out with this list and they sort of gloss over the fact that these results are in parts per billion. And they just pick 10 crops that have had any kind of recorded, higher recorded level or 12 crops rather, Dirty Dozen. And then they pick 15 that had the lowest amount or the least or no amount. And they make a big deal about that. They encourage you to um, eat organic and, and buy organic instead. And what's sad about that is um, I know that you're aware of the study that was came out in, was it 2015 or 2016, that where they looked at uh, a lower-income lower families, mm-hmm. and I think it was like Detroit, yes. and asked them if they were aware of things like the Dirty Dozen and Organic, and they found that people were aware, and this, these lower-income folks were avoiding buying fruits and vegetables unless they could buy organic. Right. and. You know, back to your point, Joan, would you rather get them to buy a bag of apples for $1.99 or get them to buy two bags of Cheetos for $1.99? I mean, right, right. 
what do you, what do we want? We want them to buy the apples, right? right? But no matter how they were grown. And that dirty dozen list, so what they did is keep in mind that 99% of, of the fruits and vegetables that were grown in the United States were acceptable and they had low, low levels of these pesticides. But what the dirty dozen um, looks at, this this USDA report, mind you, so they use their own, our own tax dollars producing this report and just get the highest of the lowest. Right. It's the craziest exactly. thing in the whole wide world. And you don't want to scare people out of eating fruits and vegetables. And, you know, you know, I went onto their website and I said, well, who is funding this? And they have some grants right. and everything. But a lot of organic companies are funding. Yep. And that's that's not playing fair. That's not nice. That's you know not what I mean? cool. No, no that's not that's nice. Not cool. That's just not yep. nice. And uh, that's, you know, I don't want to scare people from getting, you know, eating fruits and vegetables. And I want people to be loving farmers and understand how much they put in uh, goes into this. So that's why I go to farmer's markets. I, mean, I guess you're down south, so you're, you're obviously mm-hmm. uh, you must have more farmer's markets than we have up here in New England. But do you go often buy all your fruits and vegetables and products from them? No, you know, since I work for a supermarket oh. and we buy from local farmers, um, I don't feel like I need to go to a farmer's market. I mean, I like farmer's markets. I think they're a fun social place, and a lot of times when I go, I'm scouting out people that might want to work with us as a supermarket. You may end up getting some varieties you don't see at the mm-hmm. supermarket because they're a little bit more fragile or they're not as widely grown. I think for many people, one of the drawbacks of farmers markets is that they're not open for very long. Right, you know, right. So you have to be very strategic and be like, okay, if I go to the farmer's market, it's only open on Wednesday from 3 to 6 p.m. and it's only open right. on Saturday from 8 to 12. So. Right. That's tough if you're a, a working family and you've got kids in sports and things like that. And like I said, as a supermarket, the produce we buy, especially during months where we, where things are growing here in the southeast, is coming from our region. So North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. And then we start moving into like Florida or California or Mexico or Texas. But we try and buy most of our, uh, most of our produce. Um, locally, right, uh, right. regionally. You know, that's a good point you said because I'm I'm finding that a lot of supermarkets now are having produce from locally grown. So and mm-hmm. now, of course, you know we know the number one reason why people eat is for taste, and yet something is locally grown. You got you know I, I don't want to brag, Leah, but an apple here in the fall in New England is like candy. It's delicious. Uh-huh. Uh, it's like so fabulous. So you know, locally grown is great. And you're right. You don't have to always go to a farmer's market because the, the farmer's market may be coming for the supermarket. And I also know that a lot of businesses and campuses, I know here at Boston University, we bring a farmer's market in every Thursday. And you oh, can nice. buy. So I think a lot of them are, are doing that. So we're making it easy to support your local farmer and enjoy fabulous food. You often get um, documentaries and that show things that are not accurate. And, and and you wrote this article, and I am putting this up on the Spot On uh, Facebook page, where you don't call it a documentary. It's a documentary, and you see, like, like uh, a 
747 going over a crop of vegetables, and they're like flooding the place with pesticides and everything, which is like, hello, where's the drama of this? Or you see like animals in cages and everything, everything. So you wrote this article that I just love, and you say it's not a documentary because people look at this, and this is where they get their information that farmers are mean people, and you call it a documentary. Documentary, I think that's terrible. Just give us three tips of how somebody is when you're watching a documentary or you think and it's really a shockumentary where what are some red flags to say this, this where are they getting this from so what are three red flags when people are looking at these uh, stories about farmers that you know that they're all this is crazy well i think number one would be if they talk about studies write down some of the things that they're mentioning and and google it and right. actually look at the study yourself and see if what they're saying and claiming aligns with what the study actually said. Many times it does not. Number two, if they glorify small, local, organic farms and make everything into a black and white issue, like if if it's small, it's good. If it's big, it's bad. That should be a red flag for you because it it is actually much more of a continuum. It isn't as black and white in the the real world. Right, because many family farms are big farms. Right, right and, so, and then right. and and many small farms kind of come together and act as a big farm. They collaborate and they and they kind of work together as a big farm. And I think number three is if if the documentary has a lot of celebrities in it, but no actual farmers or scientists, right? That should be a big red flag to you. If it's heavy on the celebrities and kind of comes up short when it comes to science, that should be a big red flag. Right. So in other words, stop watching these shockumentaries and go visit a farm to see really 2020 vision, you know, uh, who's growing your food and how passionate they are. So right. I, I thank you so much, Leah, for coming on this. You know, I've been wanting yeah, to do something that's because I can't stand that, that, that they're uh, there's such negativeness around farmers and farming. When I've gone to so many farm tours, and I know you're a, a pro at this, they are passionate about this. And all I got to say is please continue farmers out there, both men and women, please continue to be passionate about this because I'm Italian and I like to eat. So if you stop <laughs> farming, uh, what am I going to do, Leah? I mean, it's all about me, right? <laughs> Good point, John. Okay, there we go. So Leah McGrath, we're going to put our picture up and all her links to some of the things that she mentioned, the website for you to check. And you have got to read this shockumentary article she wrote because it's hysterical, you know, uh, of a, what you, red flags that you see when you know something is just not right. So with that, my good friend Leah, um, thank you so much for coming on Spot On. Oh, thank you, Jen. Thank you for listening to Spot On. Please subscribe to Spot On on your favorite podcast app for new episodes every week. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Joan Salgy Blake. And also like our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes. And oh, by the way, could you ask five of your friends or family members to download Spot On and subscribe to it? Do I ask a lot from you?